from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Cliff Hudson, the former CEO of Sonic Drive-In. The world's changing rapidly, technology is changing rapidly, and my view is you're going to be far better off learning how to think critically, being curious about the world, and keeping your eyes open, keeping your head up, engage broadly as those opportunities arise. How Cliff Hudson went from a law office to running one of America's most iconic fast food chains. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Sonic started out as a root beer, hot dog, and hamburger stand on the outskirts of Oklahoma City just after World War II. Eventually, it became known as a kind of futuristic drive-in burger joint. At Sonic, you could park your car under a canopy, order through a speaker, and a car hop would come to your car, sometimes on roller skates, with a tray of food. Over the next few decades, Sonic became a powerhouse fast food chain, but mainly in the southern United States. But it was a company with ambitions to branch out far beyond the south. And the company's growth really began in the 1980s, around the time Cliff Hudson joined as a lawyer for the brand. Cliff never intended to rise to the top and become CEO, but he ended up becoming one of the company's longest-running CEOs in history. And he recently wrote a book about his time there and what he learned about leadership. The book's called Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. At the age of 12, Cliff's family moved to Oklahoma City after his dad's roofing business went bankrupt. The collapse had a ripple effect on Cliff's family for many years after that. And it took his dad a long time to own a home again. So Cliff was determined to get a safe and stable job one day. After graduating from the University of Oklahoma, Cliff moved to Washington, D.C., where he started law school at Georgetown University. While this disruption had been going on in my family, I watched some other families that I knew in town, and particularly um, men, head of families, who um, were, well, I mean, to, to a person, they were lawyers. And they practice law, and they're involved in politics, and they're involved in community affairs. 
And as a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, my reaction was, I like that. That's a very attractive. Uh, their homes weren't being foreclosed on either. So this was for me that this was a more stable lifestyle. Uh, in addition to that, I had to say, as I finished, as I was winding up college, I hadn't quite finished. I did for some period of time consider going on to graduate school, in a, not in law, but in either history or, or another related subject. And um, it was my dad that urged me not to do that. And uh, he sent me some articles about lack of job availability, et cetera. So that kind of helped me think more about going into law. So that actually is something I had been thinking about doing since I was literally 15, 16 years old. Hmm. And so it was not a new thought, and and I stayed on track. So w when you when you finished law school, you actually the first thing you did was to get a, a job at a corporate law firm. You moved to Baltimore. Um, what was it like? Was it a was it sort of an old school traditional law firm, or was it was it more more modern? This is nineteen eighty. What, what, what do you remember yeah, about that? It was it was a very old line, large law firm downtown, major bank building. So it was a real challenge for me uh, to make that transition of uh, going in the office every day and just sitting in a quiet office, hmm. you know, churning out documents. It was difficult. It was quite difficult. Yeah. I think fairly quickly I reached the conclusion that that was probably a tough path. Baltimore seemed to be a, while it was an attractive town in many ways, uh, from a professional standpoint, it did seem like people who were born there, grew up there. Uh, were the folks that kind of had the inside track on things. In Baltimore, they didn't ask you where you're from. They asked you where you went to high school. And so, you know, it didn't take too long before my reaction was, this is probably going to be a long-term challenge. Uh, I was probably never really going to enjoy being an associate in the law firm and then kind of sitting and just working on documents and review and documents and review. Uh, even once we returned to Oklahoma City, that was still a tough thing. It just, my brain didn't work yeah. that way. Yeah. How did you, I mean, you're a lawyer, it's 1984, so you're probably, what, in your late 20s, I guess. Yeah, I was just turning 30, yes. How did you get connected with this burger joint, Sonic? Yeah. What's the story? story was, um, I was a little familiar with the business because it was headquartered here. Sonic was headquartered in Oklahoma City. Yes. And more importantly, I had a former neighbor who was an officer of the company. And my wife and I invited him and his wife uh, to a political dinner. And at the dinner, he told me that there was an open position uh, at the company. And I met him later to tell me about it more, tell me about the company, et cetera, and made the decision to go over and meet huh. the CEO and ultimately apply for it. So you joined uh, and, and they hired you to work in the legal department. Uh, I guess this was was 1984. And was Sonic a pretty significant burger chain then? I mean, I I hadn't heard about it. I mean, I was, I was a little kid, but I can't remember hearing about it in the 80s. So what what was the state of things at Sonic at the time? It was, uh, it, it was uh, uh, shaky, although the foundation may have been decent, but it was small. And in the 70s, there had been some very rapid expansion. And I know when the founder, Troy Smith, sold the company into an ownership group of which he was part. He went from being the sole owner to one of 12, but the largest stockholder, the founder did. 
He had 225 stores. That was, I'm pretty sure that was 1975. Hmm. By 81, there were 1,300. Wow. So they added 1,000 stores. Wow. So it was, it was a rapidly growing business by the early 80s. Very rapidly going, but without sufficient support to it from a site selection standpoint, from a consistency of product and menu and so on. So in fact... In the next three years, they closed 300 stores. Wow. So they, they, they were down to like six, 700 stores by the time you joined? Well, just below 1,000, about, about 980, 970 when I joined the company. But the closures seemed to have come to a stop. And did they? Yes, they did. Okay. So you joined. Um, this is in the oil bus, yeah, right? Yeah, this is in the oil bus. And, and Sonic at that point had mainly been in the South, right? Yes, that's correct. So, um, and, and sort of Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia. Yes, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, mm-hmm. Missouri, Texas, so this was Oklahoma. A, this is primarily a regional burger chain and, um, yes. and affected in part by the oil bust. Um, was Sonic, I mean, you know, there's McDonald's at the time, and I'm assuming McDonald's wasn't doing as bad. Was Sonic just not delivering? Was it not able to compete with the quality of McDonald's? What was going on? Well, this was the early 80s, and um, I suspect part of it may have been the peculiar circumstance from a competitive, uh, the nature of how the company got to where it was. I think by 81, 2, 3, there were almost no stores in the metropolitan areas. They were virtually all rural. Hmm. And so it was a little bit different kind of uh, system. And in Oklahoma, Texas, anyway, a lot of those rural communities were very badly hit by the oil bus. Well, Louisiana, Arkansas, it was widespread pain. So uh, I think the bigger cause for it, though, was this extraordinary expansion you know, from 75 to 80 of basically 1,000 stores and, and you didn't have the base to supply the human resources to operate it. I, I'm quite confident with that kind of expansion, they were not cautious on the site selection. Uh, so if you have poor site and poor management, you're just, you're in trouble. Yeah. No matter what the competition's doing. Where, I mean, what was the plan? Was there a sense that things were not, were not right? I mean, do, do you remember an atmosphere of sort of doom and gloom when you, when you joined? Um, because there was a new uh, CEO, I think there was a little bit more sense, okay, something different is going to happen. This is a, this is CEO Stephen Lynn. Yes. And he rebuilt the management team. So you had these different people moving from across the country to come in and be, you know, VP of HR, VP of company operations, VP of franchise operations, VP of marketing. So in fact, there seemed to be some energy about it. Uh, now, the politics was kind of tough because you had new and old. And um, there was also a key cultural thing at this point that was the guys who had built this you know 800 900 almost a thousand stores in a short period of time in the late 70s all still owned stores they were no longer officers of the company but they were stockholders of the company and they owned the stores ordinarily you'd have an independent board of directors hire the president and the president would deal with the franchisees here you had the franchisees also being the board of directors and the stockholders And they hired Steve Lynn, who in turn hired the team. So there was a very challenging dynamic in terms of just control of the company, being able to manage it. Hmm. It was very challenging. 
so from from what I've I've read in in the mid '80s, there was um the company was private. There were a few hundred shareholders, and and one shareholder who was was threatening to buy the company out. Yes, and this was a real possibility. Yes. So what did you do? Well, that was a uh, that changed everything because uh, because it was a real threat. The founder and the board of directors took it quite seriously. The man who made the yeah, challenge, Jim Barrett had previously been a board member, was still a stockholder and a 30-unit operator. And when he made the threat, he he was serious about it. He came to us, meaning to Steve Lynn and me, uh, with his lawyer, and um, said, I'm going to buy the company and I'm going to fire you all. <laughs> so when he left, my boss got a hold of the founder, described him what the, had occurred in the meeting, and um, the founder uh, went into pretty good defensive mode went to his friends uh, that had been involved in the business for years, and he secured from them an option on their stock. As it turned out, got 51% of the outstanding shares of the stock, so he effectively blocked Jim Barrett from buying the company. But it suddenly put the management team in a position where, I mean, if we, if we really, we didn't have the money, but if we, if we could get the money, it meant we could exercise the option to buy the company. And that's what we set out to do. Wow, so how did you do it? Well, since none of us had any money, we knew if we're gonna. Because what was the what was the price, by the way? Well, again, he had uh, he had assigned the option for this general term of fair market value. In my head and in conversations yeah. over the years, I've always said we bought it for ten million bucks, but it was nine point eight million or whatever it was. So nine point eight million dollars was a was a price to buy out Sonic. Yes. Which doesn't seem like a bad price. That seems like a pretty good value in nineteen eighty five. Yeah. Well, you know, you you're, you're right. However, uh, the question always when the something's going through a downturn, you've you're you're one you've you've closed three hundred stores in the yeah. system. Yeah. You know, is that is that the end of that? Well, you don't know. And in addition to that, you're in this oil bust. People are unemployed, less than right. How bad is that going to get? Well, you don't know. Yeah. And there weren't other buyers uh, other than than Jim Barrett, but Troy was not going to let that happen. But the, it took us a year. I mean, the fact is, the CEO went to 20 banks and got turned down by all of them. Wow. And um, uh, so it was not a easy thing to pull off. In retrospect, the price looks stunningly cheap. Yeah. But uh, I should also say to you something not widely known, but this is um, decades old now. I think in 82, but somewhere right in there, perhaps 81, the auditors for the company delivered to the board a, a going concern opinion questioning whether the company would be in business a year later. Wow. Was that bad? It was. It, I think because of the store closures and the company being liable on a lot of these leases, it was, uh, yeah, it was a questionable situation. All right. So you get the money. You, well, you, you, you find the money to, to buy out the company, $10 million. And, and did you personally have a whole lot of money to put into that? No. Nope. <laughs> How much did you put in? Uh, I can tell you exactly how much I put in. Out of pocket, I put in twenty five hundred bucks. Twenty five? Are they even? I can't even believe they allowed you to to participate with twenty five hundred dollars. Well, it was uh, the total was twenty five thousand. Cash out of pocket was twenty five hundred. I rolled in stock options uh, for about seventy five hundred, and I borrowed at the bank fifteen thousand dollars. So between the three, I had twenty-five thousand to put into the company. I have a feeling that twenty-five thousand dollars investment worked out pretty well for you over the years. <laughs> um, 
I also I also give that detail in the book because I can tell you that for that twenty five thousand dollars or the twenty five hundred out of pocket, two and a half years later, I pulled out six hundred thousand dollars wow. cash. That's incredible. And and increased my ownership two and a half years later at the same time. Wow. So did it work out well? It it changed my life. Not the six hundred thousand, but two and a half years later when we reworked the structure of the company. Yep. And new partners, new outside partners, new debt lenders, and so on. And I went from owning 1% to 8%. So I increased my ownership by eight times and yet still pulled out $600,000 for that $2,500 cash that I put in. So at 34 years old, still watching an oil bust wreak havoc around me, you know, to do that out on the plains here, that was good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. All right. So you are the general counsel at Sonic. Yep. Uh, did you have ambitions to run the company or were you happy doing what you were doing? Um, I was thankful that the buyout had worked well. I was very thankful for the recapitalization in 88, in which I increased my ownership and put a lot of money in my pocket. It was more money I'd made in my life at that point. But the fact is, the answer is no. I was not thinking about running the company. And so I remained general counsel 89, 90, 91. But one of the things, a guy with a small company like that, when you've done one buyout and then a second transaction recapitalization, I was centrally involved mm. in both, significantly involved in both. And you really learn, you know, how does the company make money and where's the growth come from over time and and learn to tell the story, not just do the legal work, but tell the story to investors and so on. So I had I had really 
got a big education in corporate finance. And uh, with the chief operating officer gone, there was almost kind of a void there working with the CEO in 89 and 90. The next step that occurred was our 50% partners that had come in with us in 88 decided that the company had grown rapidly. Our New York partners that had invested in half the company with us in 88 were ready to go. So we took it public. And then from 88 to 91, when we took it public, it was valued at $100 million. So a fantastic, a really fantastic education for me in my 30s with this company, its history and its and its projected hmm. growth. So did you... Did you want to 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 be a leader? I mean, did you want to move into a into the CEO role? Was that was that kind of in the back of your mind? Well, I think I wanted. That's an interesting question. I can I can see that from early in my life, the things that I had enjoyed the most in junior high and high school and college was having some leadership role. And so, most of the time, while I was uh, in you know in the eighties with Sonic. I didn't see that within the company. I didn't see myself as being a, a businessman long term, and I didn't see the opportunity available. So uh, I was not, I was not seeing myself that way. And in in a year after we went public, my boss came to me and he said, "I want you to be CFO." And the company didn't have a CFO; we had a VP of finance. And I thought, well, what the heck, you know. So I just said yes. I mean, I thought this would be an interesting education. I'd been general counsel for a lot of years. So I became CFO in 92. And um, still not seeing myself growing into the business thing. What happened in 93, I went to my boss and I said, uh, thanks for the opportunity, but I think it's time for me to move on. I'm going to give you a substantial notice so you can figure out how you want to restructure my responsibilities behind me or in my departure. He waited a little while. 30, 60 days. And then he came back to me and he said, well, why don't you become chief operating officer and just run the company day to day? So you stay on and you are, you know, you you be your CFO, COO. Um, 1995, you become CEO, but it's in this very dramatic way. This was not uh, from what I understand, this is not planned. What what happened? You, your predecessor was I mean, he was CEO, and he kind of leaves abruptly. What's what's the story? Well, there this occurred abruptly in a uh, board meeting, not with not with when I say abruptly, not with anger and not with conflict. He uh, announced to the board that he had another job offer that he was interested in taking, and he was interested in taking it immediately. He recommended to them that I succeed him. Then he left. Uh, not much else occurred, but they asked me to leave. You know, separately. It was a, you know, suddenly a very awkward situation. Huh. But I did leave the room, and then I came back in, and they said, "Do you want the job as CEO?" And yeah, I was like, "Well, okay." I mean, uh, the fact is, I was running the company day to day, and I think in terms of strategy development. Uh, even before I was COO, I was very involved in strategy development, key relationships, board governance, uh, all kinds of things that a CEO would be doing, but I, I was doing without the money, without the title. Mm. And so my year and a half as COO, I did start kind of rebuilding the management team, getting things on a different track. So I'd, I'd taken on heavy responsibility and really gotten very into the nets and day to day. 
And so when the board said to me, you want the CEO job, in my head was, uh, you know, I'm already running day to day. Why not? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I wonder when you um, when you took over in 1995, right? Um, what I mean, now it's your company and you've got to lay out a vision. And what was it? I mean, you know, when you had joined the company 10 years earlier, it was still mostly in, in rural spots. Where was it in 1995? Was it was it I mean, was it growing quickly? Was it it was still largely a southern brand, as I understand it? Yes. Yes. We had already started some planning processes. So we began putting together a plan. This was 1995. And so like a lot of companies, we developed something called a a 2000 plan, a Sonic 2000 plan. And literally went through the process of, you know, to move the business forward. What does our physical plant need to look like? What do our uniforms need to look like? What do our menus need to look like? How do we get all this more consistent across the system? And uh, I was keenly involved in that. It was actually being run by our chief marketing officer, Patty Moore. But here's the thing that happened, Guy, as part of this Sonic 2000 plan, but the menu consistency initiative. In the book, I talk about uh, a fellow, a franchisee who came to me and said, you got to help me out. I'm off here in the Carolinas and I got a program that's working for me, but your officers are telling me I got to shut it down. Hmm. And I say, well, what's your program? He says, it's an ice cream program. And I said, well, tell me about it. He tells me about it. And I'm going to go, okay, okay. We, we don't push that much ice cream. He was just he was just selling, like, what kind of, just like ice cream scoops? Yeah, we, we all throughout the system had a soft serve machine yeah. that would serve vanilla ice cream. Actually, most of them serve vanilla and chocolate. Right. And, and so what did most stores do? Well, they would make a sundae, they'd make a cone, and they would make shakes. Right. And that was basically it. Yep. But he had a broader program, and he promoted it. He included banana splits and lots of other flavors and toppings and special deals at one time of the week or another, you know. But the corporate office was saying, you can't do that. That's not part of the deal. My fellow officers were out telling him to shut it down. And I said to him, what is your top store performing in terms of ice cream sales? And he said, well, my top store, and keep in mind, the average store probably did about 3% of sales. He says, my top store does 30%. What? 30% of their sales were from ice cream? Yes. And I was just stunned. I just almost fell out of my chair. And so my comment to him was, don't do anything. Don't don't stop anything. Let's have our folks come out there, look at your program, and see how easily replicable this is. And so we went out, looked at it, Revised it slightly, you know, with his buy-in the whole time. Started testing it in a few markets. And it took us a year or more to get the whole thing done, go through some test markets, et cetera. But we rolled it out across the system in May of 96. And sales just took off. And what were the products that you were offering? So in addition to what we'd had historically of a, you know, a single sundae and a cone and shakes or malts, we did add a banana split. And we started bringing in other toppings, mm-hmm. putting a brownie in with the sundae and, you know, et cetera. Yep. In, in a lot of ways, Guy, if you have eight items in inventory, you can put 16 or 24 on the menu. Right. You know, just a sleight of hand sort of thing. Right. Put a banana on it, call it this. Right. Take the banana off and call it that, you know. And was it called, like, I know now it's called, like, the frozen zone. At, that's, at that's it. That's when it started, frozen fountain favorites. And 
How much of an impact did this ice cream program have on Sonic's business? Transformative. Really? Transformative. The next full fiscal year, the average store profits went up 40%. And and that's unbelievable. It's, so this idea that this one franchise operator had. And, and by the way, when you rolled this out nationally, did the existing stores have to do much? I mean, did they have to add ice cream machines? Did they have to add, uh, you know, topping stations? No. They did not have to. Nobody had to add, uh, add an ice cream machine. They already had it. So they, uh, it was the same. It was one soft serve machine. That didn't change. Yes. The biggest controversy guy, and it was so comical in retrospect, was most of these ice cream machines had two channels through which you could draw the ice cream. Chocolate or vanilla. Yes. And we insisted that our operators drop the chocolate because the demand was going to be great enough on the vanilla that if they didn't drop the chocolate, they would not be able to meet customer demands. And, And, oh, that was just like you know, taking their babies away. Wow. It's unbelievable. I mean, I want to, I just want to kind of break this down a little bit because essentially all Sonics already had a soft serve machine. Yep. So you were essentially saying to the franchisees, look, you're going to go all vanilla and we're going to, each store is going to have like, I don't know, you're going to have Oreo cookies and you're going to have strawberries and bananas and we're going to give you blenders. And then you're just going to add the soft serve and Oreos and then bam, you got the shake. Is that, was that literally like that simple? Uh, Yeah. So so all they needed was a blender and some whipped cream. Well, in fact, and they already had the blenders. They had the blenders. Okay. What it was was putting it in the nomenclature behind it. Before that time, when you pulled into a Sonic stall, there was a full menu on the left-hand side of their stall and a full menu on the right-hand side of the stall. Now what occurred, you pulled in, there was a full menu on the left or on the right. It was ice cream, drinks, ice cream, drinks, screaming at you. So, I mean, it, it is amazing to me that this tiny little pivot, this nudge, which it wasn't a major thing. It was it was an asset you already had. It had such a huge impact. I mean, it's so, it is amazing that these small things that are right in front of everyone's eyes can have such a huge impact. Yes. What it did, though, was it gave our customers a way to use us in a way they had not been previously, both by day part, but also by product, and, and you might say more critically, by occasion. So now someone that may have had lunch with you earlier in the week, maybe they do or don't want to come back for lunch, um, they don't mind coming back to bring the family for a treat in the evening or stop in for a snack in the afternoon. Gives them more options to use you in different ways without costing us more from a real estate standpoint, yeah. nor from an equipment standpoint, yeah, you know, nor from a labor standpoint. Were any of the of the, of the um, franchises skeptical? I mean, yes, I, I I understand that some of them didn't want to stop serving chocolate soft serve, but were any of them skeptical about this plan working? Yes, there's some of them were hesitant about it. I had one franchisee. I saw him in a meeting. Let's just say six or twelve months later, and he and I were visiting one on one, and he said uh, he said to me. Um, Gleefully, he said, I had one of my store operators ask me, when are we going to stop promoting ice cream? And my franchisee said, I told him, never. (laughs) (laughs) So it was unpopular with some folks. It was a difference. It was real different in terms of what is this brand. And so part of it was a mind shift. Part of it was an operational shift. But if you handle both well, there was a big payoff. So you get the this ice cream program, and all of a sudden, Sonic is really differentiated. I guess right now, it's it's different than the 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 other chains or the regional chains, the Carl's Juniors and the 
Hardee's and and even McDonald's and I mean, right? I mean, this is now there's something there's almost like more of an identity at this point. Yes, Sonic. yes, I think that's right. Yeah, use it differently. It's more fun. Take the family. Yes. So, all right. So you are now firmly. You've got this big win with the with the ice cream program, and the company is now starting to really turn around. Um, I'm curious about something that you decided to do. This is pretty early on. This is 2003. You you pushed to install um, basically um, something called Pay Your Stall, which allowed customers to pay by credit card at the order stalls instead of handing the, the cash or the card to the uh, car hops because it's a, it's yes. a drive-in. Was yes. that, I mean, you know, today, of course, it's available everywhere, but was it controversial? Yes. And why? Well, I had gone to a conference uh, sponsored by Visa in Chicago. You know, just, it kind of surprised me. The woman who was presenting on behalf of Visa said, um, number one, a food buying decision, who makes that in the family? Answer, mom, woman makes that decision. Kids second, dad's third. This was her data. Then she said, if you accept a credit card as a form of payment, it will double the likelihood of someone coming to your shop. So when I left, I thought, uh, well, we already accept credit cards, but what's our barrier on that? And, and the answer is you got to take it out of their hand and take it inside. Huh. And so my thought was, well, you go to these service stations and put gas in your car. You don't have to go inside. You right. run the credit card outside and you drive away. Why can't we do that? It took a while inside uh, with a couple of folks. I'm quite confident that some of them thought it was just a goofy idea. And in a relatively short period of time, we had some tests in place. And the customer reception to it was fantastic. Hmm. They, they really liked it and, of course, utilized it. Some of the operators were resistant, the idea of having to put a credit card reader at every single parking stall. But once operators understood how strong the return was, how much customers liked it, we had the entire thing rolled out in you know whatever number of stores we had at the time, 2,500 stores. Hmm. We had it rolled out in 18 months across the system in Keep in mind, in my last 15 years then as CEO from 03 to 2018, in that 15-year period, the company, the brand, went from just over $2 billion in sales to $4.5 billion. <laughs> so in a way, what that says is not only was it received well by the customers, but you can attribute 100% of the growth you know, to credit card transactions. Wow. So again, even when you you when you marvel about the idea that really they already had an ice cream machine, all they had to do was you know make it a little different and promote it and and took off. If you modify your approach to provide an experience that is not just a little different, but it's something that meets the customer's needs, then they're going to embrace it. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with the frozen fountain favorites. And that's what happened with pays, pay at your stall, credit card reader at each stall. And they were both wonderful innovations. Wow. I mean, it's because, it, again, a simple change, but, but a huge return. Um, well, and Guy, in both cases, something somebody else was already doing. I mean, our, our operator in North Carolina already had it. He just He really wanted to be left alone. Yeah. But on the credit card piece, uh, the service stations were doing it all over the country. Right. 
there was an article in the New York Times in 2018, and it, it basically said, look, the, the Sonic is a, a bit of a rarity in corporate America. Um, your management team was mostly women and minorities and a board that, that was close to that. So it sounds like this is a deliberate policy of yours, that, that you, you deliberately set out to have a management team made up of mostly women and minorities. Is that right? Um, no. Um, I can say that I think perhaps I was more open to it than many executives might have been. But over time, as we recruited new members to the board, uh, we there was a time where the view was, you know, let's try to get someone that's been a CEO that's its own has its own self-limiting, you know, Sure. Outcome, yep. you know, because you start with a small pool and you get a small pool, you know. So once we started saying, look, he or she does not have to have been a CEO, then you suddenly broaden the pool quite a bit. So by the time I left Sonic, uh, we did have out of and 10 outside board members. Uh, most were not, you know, white male. We had four women. We had two men of, of color. And then we had four white males. So there was good diversity about the board. And uh, that's something I was proud of. It was not something, and by the way, it was true about our management team too. It was not something that we we were not formulaic about it. Yeah. Not for not for one moment, and we never said we must have a fill in the blank. In all cases, our belief was we got the best person for the job, but we made sure the applicant pool was such that you know everybody had a shot at it. You stepped down from the company in 2018, um, and Sonic was eventually bought by um, by Inspire Brands for, for for about two more than two billion dollars. An incredible exit. Um, you recently um, put out a book, and you argue that that today in 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 big companies. Um, Focusing on specialization is is actually not the way to do it. Your book is called basically Master of None. You argue that um, people shouldn't focus on expertise. So, tell me a little bit more about about this this theory of yours. Well, so if I could state it slightly differently, it is intended to portray my path. And so the uh, title of the book, Master of None. Subtitle, How a Jack-of-All-Trades Can Still Reach the Top. I do think this concept of specialization and the degree of preparation necessary for it is a very valid concept. I think if you're going to be cleanup hitter for the New York Yankees, uh, you're going to spend years honing your skills way beyond what the average person is going to do or even above average person is going to do. What I'm relaying to folks is, is, one, and uh, particularly people young in their careers or parents as the kids are reaching college age and beyond. If a kid has general interests and they want a liberal arts degree, as an example, don't get hung up on it and, and don't chase them as though they've got to learn a trade instead of getting an education. The world's changing rapidly. Technology is changing rapidly. Jobs will go away. Certain jobs will go away altogether. And my view is you're going to be far better off learning how to think critically, being curious about the world, engaging broadly, and keeping your eyes open, keeping your head up, engage broadly as those opportunities arise. But um, that's a different approach than just saying, keep your head down and get into a repetitive practice here on the violin or the bat or whatever it is. It also happens to be the path that I took. The -the on-the-job training that I got at Sonic 
allowed me to, you know, if you want to call it specialize, it allowed me to learn the company and the business. If there was something I spent years developing, it was leadership skills. Hmm. And running a franchise organization, those leadership skills are critical in bringing people along with you. What do you think are the most important skills that, that a CEO needs to have to lead um, or to develop, I should say? I think that uh, the effective leader is going to need to have compassion and care for the people they're leading. They're going to need to have significant communication skills, but that's almost more of a, uh, a, a given. The compassion piece, I think, is, from my viewpoint, I think a leader that has passion, yes, for a mission, but passion for helping other people achieve success will do more to move an organization forward and will do more to call on people to perform at a higher level than, you know, the smarter guy who may have some smarter ideas but doesn't show that compassion for people and doesn't bring them along. Do you think that you you were born with leadership skills and abilities or do you think that you really had to learn how to become a leader? I think I had to learn. I, I know I had to learn. I was the youngest of four kids, so, you know, I was little and pushed around quite a bit, so <laughs> I don't think as a, I don't think that was necessarily as natural. But I think some of my teachers saw some things in me that pulled me along and helped me change my self-concept. And, that, and at a young age, meaning 13, 14, 15, 16, this was critical, having other people see that in me and help provide that experience. It did very much change my self-concept. Cliff Hudson is the former CEO of Sonic Drive-In and the author of Master of None, How a Jack-of-All-Trades Can Still Reach the Top. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.